The podcast Murder in Oregon caught my eye as it was constantly popping up as a top podcast to listen to. And so as of this interview with Lauren, there have only been three episodes out, but I'm hooked on it. The podcast covers one of Oregon's most high profile murders, the murder of the Department of Corrections director, Michael Frankie, who was found stabbed to death in Salem, Oregon in 1989. So the murder was pinned on a small time meth dealer named Frank Gable, who was then sent to prison for three decades, but was released in June of this year because of errors during that trial. So in the podcast, we hear a lot from Michael Frankie's two brothers, Pat and Kevin, who never thought Frank Gable was the killer. We also hear a lot from Phil Stanford, a journalist who has written extensively about the murder and the trial. And he's also a big believer in Frank Gable's innocence. So, Lauren, I'm so happy to talk to you today about murder in Oregon. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this. So, Tell me how you first found out about this case. Are you from Oregon? No. So last summer, I was a co-host and executive producer on another podcast called Happy Face, yes. um, which was, it followed the, it's kind of, kind of a coming of life uh, tale of Melissa Jesperson Moore, who is the daughter of Keith Hunter Jesperson, the Happy Face serial killer. Phil Stanford is the columnist for the Oregonian who branded Jesperson with that moniker, the happy face killer. So that's how I met Phil Stanford. And we hit it off really well and actually became friends. And we speak over the phone a couple of times a week. And this was the story, even though he is well known for happy face and the series that he did for the Oregonian, this is the story that really became a personal obsession for him to the point where it almost derailed his career. Mm. He wrote over a hundred columns about the Frankie murder or defending the innocence of Gable um, for both the Oregonian and the Portland Tribune and actually was pushed out of the Oregonian because he would not stop raising questions about the Frankie murder. Wow. Wow. Okay. So you already knew him. And so then you started following this case that was his obsession as well. And you decided, hey, let's make a podcast. The story has more twists and turns than uh, macrame tapestry. I mean, <laughs> it's just um, stranger than fiction. And as a producer, once I started meeting the people who would become main characters in this podcast, there was no turning around. You don't meet... Pat or Kevin Frankie and decide you don't want to talk to them again. Um, they've become really big parts of my life as well. Yeah, they're super interesting to listen to and just so um, like characters out of central casting and that they just are, I don't know, I can't even describe. They're just very sort of just like salt of the earth, like Midwest guys. You know, they just seems uh, the brothers seem uh, so invested and so sweet with their brother. And it just is really sweet them talking about their childhood and everything. So how long have you been working on this with Phil? Because like I said, um, in the top of the podcast, the guy that has been in prison for it got out just this June and mm -hmm. here we are in November. So how long have you been working on it, you know, prior to that and all that? 
I would say I've been working on this podcast since the first phone conversation I had with Phil um, Stanford doing Happy Face. This was something that came up early in our relationship. And there are so many characters and so many names and so many um, theories as to how Michael Frankie was murdered that it took me probably six months to get my head wrapped around it truly. And we've been in production on this since March. March. And then because it was April when they said they were going to let him out, or it was April when they said, like, there's not enough evidence to hold him in prison? Yes. Um, so the habeas corpus petition is one of the most brilliant things that I've I've read. If you get a chance and find yourself with time <laughs> to go through 100 and I think 98 pages. Oh, sure. Um, it's beautifully laid out. And it follows much of the same path that we had already plotted um, in terms of laying out the facts and the interviews for the podcast. It's very much in keeping with Mm -hmm. um, Frank Gable's defense. Okay. So it was April that they said that he could go out and that they had 90 days to retry him and they didn't retry him. So as of June, he's officially free. Yes, but the state is still going to appeal that ruling. Okay. Oh, gosh. It just drags on and on. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another quick thing about Phil Stanford, I listened to Crime Writers On, and it just happened to, like, this week they were talking about your podcast. I was like, oh, like, amazing. I mean, like, what a, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, a a symbiotic is not the right word. Kismet? Kismet. Thank you. In my in my brain, I was like, oh my gosh. And they pointed out that Phil Stanford was also key in the podcast, The Clearing, which was about Ed Edwards. And I was like, how many big murders have happened in Oregon that Phil Stanford's a part of? Well, um, I think that Phil had written about it. He wasn't a part of that podcast. I don't think they interviewed him for it, but they did um, present one of his theories. Phil and I were talking about it yesterday as I was filling him in. And it's, it's interesting, you know, that, um, I listened to their review and I consider myself first and foremost a recovering television producer because that's (laughs) the world that I had lived in. And, you know, for me, podcasting is so liberating because you can allow people to tell their stories and to speak. And coming from a world where I was forced to tell a podcast-worthy story in a minute and a half and have to condense people into pithy sound bites. I really love to let the interviews drive the narrative forward. Mm-hmm. Um, I would much rather listen to other people tell their stories than have me kind of give a concise overview of their story as a narrator. Well, yeah, and I think you're referring to Crime Writers On. One person said they wanted to really hear more from you in the story as the narrator versus some of the other characters. And I don't necessarily agree because I find Kevin and Pat to be so intriguing and Phil as well as someone who's written so much about it. I guess their thought was, and again, they, they'd only listened to two episodes. I've listened to three. We've got 12 total. They were saying that they wanted you to sort of jump in and drive the story a little bit. And like I said, I don't necessarily agree with that because the people that are telling the story are so compelling that I don't feel that you have to jump in and say like, what he said was this, you know, I think it's, it's a uh, self-evident. I, guess. I yeah. appreciate that Mary Payne. <laughs> well, you know, 
I do uh, sometimes consider myself an expert on podcasts. So, <laughs> so when I listen to other people review podcasts, I'm like, hold on a minute. These people are stepping on my, these are people are stepping on my toes. I do like that podcast, Crime Writers on a lot. Um, but when listening to that, first, the first thing I was struck as like, I, Phil Stanford had that theory about Ed Edwards murdering that couple in Lover's Lane that turned out to be true from the clearing. And then I didn't quite realize he was so entrenched in this and as well as the happy face. And then of course I'm like, is Oregon like Florida? There's just like serial killers everywhere. There's something <laughs> in the water in Oregon. There's something in well, the water in Oregon. And it's not the uh, Rajneeshis. <laughs> <laughs> okay. On that note, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back. This episode is brought to you by HP+. In a world full of smart devices, shouldn't your printer be smart too? It is with HP+. These printers know when they're running low, so you always get the ink you need delivered right when you need it. Plus, you save up to 50% on ink, so you can print whatever you want, as much as you want, any time you want. Huh, that is pretty smart. Get six free months of instant ink when you choose HP+. Conditions apply. Visit hp.com slash smart for details. Okay, I'm back with Lauren Bright Pacheco. Did I say it right? Pacheco? You did. Pacheco. Okay. Perfect. Pacheco of the podcast Murder in Oregon. Sorry about that. As somebody with a hard to understand name, I always want to make sure I get people's names right. So, okay. I want to talk about, like we said, I want to talk about the characters in the podcast. Now, the Frankie brothers... I could listen to them all day. So how often, when you started this in March, and here we are in November, how often did you talk to them to get all these amazing sound bites? And and on the same note, were you with them in person or was a lot on the phone? I was, I speak to them over the phone a lot. Um, I still have notes of the first phone conversation I had with Kevin Frankie. And at that point, I was all in. I remember scribbling. He uses profanity the way artists use clay. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> his, his use of cuss words is brilliant and really <laughs> amusing, very amusing. That's funny. And I spoke to Pat a couple of times, but had flown to Oregon twice. And the first time I met Pat in person was when I came up with a description of him. And it's true. He's Thurston Howell meets John Wayne. These are <laughs> gigantic, larger than life men, and they are deeply passionate and committed to finding justice in this horrible injustice. They can't bring their brother back. And that's why they really became champions for Frank Gable, because they never thought that he did it. And so in their minds, their brother's murder took all of Michael's life and took 30 some odd years of Frank Gable's at this point. Um, so they are deeply principled, deeply passionate and deeply loyal men who are trying to do the right thing. Well, let me, this is a total sidebar, but I just finished the third podcast where there was a psychic involved. And you, these guys don't seem like anybody that would ever listen to a psychic, for sure. Now, I could listen to a psychic all day long. I have no idea if it's true or not. It's just fun. But the psychic tells them some things that are true and that they have somebody in custody and they either say John C or John K. The, the C and the K is interchangeable. So we're not to the point in the podcast where 
Frank Gable ha has, you know, gone to jail for the murder. We're, we're still with this John K person. So who seemed to be not a very smart guy that was kind of a patsy in the whole situation. He had, he had an extremely traumatic upbringing and um, had severe challenges and had been beaten quite a bit when he was younger and was a French character in the underworld. But he leads us to another character whose name will keep coming up and we will keep revisiting. Um, okay. And Johnny Krause confessed to the murder. Okay. It was the, and this, and this was a case of they sit you in a room long enough. Like we see with the Avery case with the person that maybe is a little challenged and you sit them in the room long enough and they just go, okay, I'll tell you what you want so I can leave. You no. know, John, oh, no. Johnny Krause knew things about Michael Frankie's wounds that Ooh. had never been released to the public that he oh. wouldn't have known unless he had been at the scene of the murder or had committed the murder himself. Oh, yes. He confessed. He was questioned again later by an investigator, um, Martinak, who brought in an FBI profiler who gave him a lie detector test and he passed it. And this may be one of those situations that the powers that be did not like the people his confession would ultimately lead to. The state police gave him another test, which he passed and had him recant his confession and then offered him immunity to not recant his recantation. Okay. All right. So again, we're only on episode three, so I can't even imagine where this is going. Okay. So that was a total sidebar about John Kay and the psychic. So Michael Frankie was stabbed outside of his office next to his car that was in his special parking spot that said, you know, director of the corrections department. Yeah. So it's like no, no question whose car it was. So uh, to me, if you're a low life person that's just going to try to stab somebody, you're not going to go to the director of the entire, maybe you might get like a, a guard out way in the parking lot. So uh, yeah, I might, I might avoid the car that's parked in front of the sign that says director of the uh -huh. department of corrections. You might go a little further back into the parking lot. So um, he was stabbed through the heart. Uh, and it appears that he then crawled to the door of the building to try to get back in. That's that's from where the blood is and everything else. So anybody that knew him, especially his brothers, said he always had a gun. And there's not any way someone is going to sneak up on him and stab him or do anything to him. So he still had his watch on him. So they said it's not a burglary. And his wallet. And his money. So the theory of it's a car burglary gone wrong is ludicrous to start because they're not going to get the front car of the head of the whole thing when they could just get somebody in the parking lot late, you know, way further back. Also, not the smartest person to go to the Department of Corrections. It's like, let's like go into the chief of police and try to like stat. I mean, that makes no sense. So all of that is ludicrous to start. And then the problems that you have then is they decided to wait till the next day to look at the crime scene or like nobody looked for him on the side of the building. And, you know, just like all these random in this man in the pinstripe suit people saw. I mean, all these things you would think with such a high powered figure, he's the head of the Department of Corrections. It would be just like swarming with people trying to solve it. But that was not the case. No, it took them four hours to find the body. And Eric Mason, who is a local television reporter, brought up another really interesting 
thing. Um, Elise Clausen, who was his deputy director, mentioned that there were overgrown trees and his body was found on the front north portico um, mm-hmm. outside the dome building. And she said it is possible that your the sight line was blocked by these trees, but Eric Mason points out that he had a pager on him in those days. The pager would have been going off incessantly because people were looking for him. Ooh, yeah. So you'd think that would drive them to the body. But um, his number two and number three in command came back to the building and did what they called a meticulous search of every single nook and cranny up to the third floor where there was a little cot where they thought he might have been lying down because he could have had a headache. But they missed, as you mentioned, he tried to break back in to the door off the north portico. And there would have been glass everywhere um, inside that room. So if you opened up and looked, you would have seen the broken glass. But they didn't find anything amiss and they left and his body was found four hours after it was first um, he was first reported missing like i said it's just sort of ludicrous um and go, so, but, oh i'm so sorry go, go back to no, the point no, you where you know his body was found with his keys had been thrown to the side mm-hmm. um he had his wallet he had his money but what was missing his laptop the floppy disks, which oh. would have possibly held the information that he was about to reveal to the legislative committee mm-hmm. the next right. day. And he was going to blow the whistle on corruption within his department. He had uncovered an organized criminal element and had confided as much to his brother, Kevin. Right. That was going to be my next point, because the very next day he was set to testify um, about corruption he had found since he had come on as the new director of the Department of Corrections. So somebody wanted to shut him up. That is, you know, kind of at the base of like, okay, somebody wanted to shut him up. So who did it? Who did they get to do it? How could they have come upon him and stabbed him? And then how come nobody investigated it right away? And um as you've said, you know, there's just so many things to come and so many characters, so many twists and turns. That's why I'm so excited about it because I'm like, okay, so we've got the basis of this is not like, so this happens all the time. Somebody's exposing corruption, they get killed, you know, then they can't testify. Okay. That we get, but there's going to be, now you've said organized crime and I'm really excited. It's an organized criminal element. Um, And there is, I, promise you, Mary Payne, you will not be disappointed. This is one of the most complicated but deeply rewarding projects I've ever worked on. Yeah, it was very telling that his brothers, Kevin and Pat, went to his house and after, you know, they couldn't find him and he they found out he was murdered and then they found out he was actually stabbed, which they just couldn't believe. And so they went to his house. He had a gun under his pillow and another one by the back door. And he was obviously very afraid of something or someone which they were so stunned by knowing what a, a like a John Wayne type character he was himself that they just really couldn't believe he was afraid of anything. But obviously they could tell from the way his house was that he was very afraid of something happening to him. So whatever he was uncovering was going to be really, really bad. He yeah. knew that there were some very connected, powerful people who were involved in corruption. Yeah. 
Oh my God. So, um, I, I, this is just kind of circling back to what we said about Frank Gable. Why? So they didn't choose to retry him within that 90 day window from when he got released. I guess they had until June and then June, they said, we're not going to do it again. But now you're saying they are going to appeal that. And I, it'll be interesting to see their next moves. One, because of the popularity of the podcast, which is really going to, um, reaffirm with very personal firsthand experience and accounts, many of the things that the public defender Nell Brown lays out in her brilliant habeas corpus petition. Um, They really don't have a case. Uh Uh-huh. So it'll be interesting to see how they try to defend their continued, um, Denial that that Frank Gable was innocent is innocent, and now, and, and now you're thinking, okay, it's been 30 years, so the characters perhaps that were being exposed for corruption, I mean, they're still around or whatever the deal is. But like, it, you just feel like so bad for the person who's been in jail all this time. You're like, okay, this guy didn't do it; he wasn't involved in the corruption. He, you know, you know, and he just makes you. It makes you sick. And then you, it makes you also think like they know that this guy is going to sue the state of Oregon for millions of dollars. <laughs> so there's probably trying to avoid that as well, you know? And think about it. Just think about losing 30 years of your life coming out and think of the technology even, you know, not knowing how to yeah. use a cell phone, let alone social media, um, not having had the chance to come into contact with a kitten or a dog. That was one of the first, it just, it's, it's heartbreaking. Um, having lost the possibility of having, raising a family. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Gosh, it's a great loss. Well, we'll hear uh, more about that, I guess, um, as we go through your podcast and we get towards what happened with Frank Gable. Absolutely. Okay. We're going to take another break and I'll be right back with Lauren Bright Pacheco. Support for this podcast comes from Invent Together. According to studies, less than 13% of all inventors who hold a U.S. patent are women. Black and Hispanic college graduates patent at half the rate of their white counterparts. But we can fix that by increasing participation in innovation and patenting by underrepresented groups. It would quadruple the number of American inventors and increase annual GDP by almost $1 trillion. Invent Together is a coalition of organizations, companies, universities, and concerned citizens committed to ensuring that everyone has the opportunity to invent and patent. Because the more diverse the American patent system gets, the stronger and more successful our nation will become. What can you do to help diverse inventors patent and unleash economic opportunity? Find out at inventtogether.org. Learn more and take action today. Okay, we're back with Lauren Bright Pacheco of the podcast, Murder in Oregon. Tell me your history with podcasts, because you mentioned that you're a former TV producer. So actually, tell me about that first. Tell me about your TV producing life, and then I want to hear about your podcast life. Okay, excellent. I um, started out in radio, so podcasting is kind of coming home to me. But for um, longer than I would care to say, I have been a television producer and worked on a variety of different shows, magazine format shows, including the Dr. Oz show, where I was his special features producer for um, 
off and on eight years. And we started doing a lot of true crime actually on that show. And that's how I became connected with Melissa Jesperson Moore. And our executive producer, Amy Chiaro, loves podcasts and thought that I'd be a great fit for doing a podcast with Melissa. And that's where Happy Face found its footing and and grew into a podcast. Okay. Now let me ask you this. How does Dr. Oz, I know about Dr. Oz's show, but I haven't really watched it. I just see him sometimes as guests on other shows. How was he doing on his show, True Crime? There's if we're, a, if we're trying to be a medical thing. Yes, there's a there's a mental health tie-in to it, um, okay. and and I think that he has always been interested in what makes people ill and how to help people lead better, healthier lives. And it's something that personally fascinated him. Okay. All right. All right. That makes sense then. It's, it's so interesting. You, you famous people, you would never sort of connect with being fans of true crime, but um, I'm a big fan of my favorite murder and they interviewed Conan O'Brien or he interviewed them or something for Conan O'Brien needs a friend. And he said that there were several high profile uh, murders in New York city that he was very interested in. And when he was a writer on SNL during his breaks, he would go over and sit in the courtroom to watch the trials. That's how big of a true crime, how, what an interest he has in it. And they were like, so you're the head writer on SNL and you're just taking breaks to go watch a murder trial. He was like, yeah, I had to, like I had to, it was right down the street. So you think about that, you think about Dr. Oz, you think like, ah, oh, all, all these people are getting in on our jam, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, Stay in your lane. <laughs> I just had the chance this past weekend to meet uh, Jason Flom, who has a great podcast called Wrongful Conviction. Okay. I don't know if you're familiar, um, but he's a record label guy. He's a music guy. Uh, and for 25 years, he's been um, dedicating his time and effort to helping people who have been wrongfully convicted, either, you know, given life sentences or even sentenced to death for crimes they didn't commit and helping get them out of prison. So you're right. It just, uh, it's, there's something about crime that fascinates people. You know, it's funny you said that because early on in my podcast, I interviewed one of the guys from Generation Y, which is such a great podcast. And I just assumed because they're such a great podcast, they've been around for so long. They're one of the top leaders in true crime that that's what they did for their full time jobs. But no, they both work at like Ford Motor Company in Detroit. They just sort of decide the week before what crime they're going to do. They each sort of do some research and they sit down and talk about it. But the way that their podcast goes, it seems very um, scripted in that I talk, you talk, I talk, you talk. That's literally just the way they talk to each other. And the whole time I was like, there's no way that you guys haven't written every word down, spent weeks on each episode. They're like, no, just the week before we look at it, we're, we're uh, I don't know. They made it sound like they're like Laverne and Shirley, like they're on the line at the Ford Motor Company. I don't really think that's the case, but <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, it's so interesting that the people that you would think that this is their only job actually do tons of other things. Like you're talking about the guy that had the record company wrongful mm-hmm. conviction, mm-hmm. like, but he's helping people that are wrongfully convicted in his spare time. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Absolutely. That's unbelievable. So other than Happy Face, tell me what other podcasts you've worked on or what, uh, which ones you're working on now, if you're 
working on something else now that you can tell us about? Sure. I am also the executive producer on uh, the first season of Katie Couric's podcast. Next question. Ah, I love Katie Couric. She's wonderful. She's really (laughs) wonderful. And we have gotten to tackle some incredible topics this season. I'm so proud of... um, the, the, the episodes that we have out. So if you get a chance, check that out. Next question. Next with question Couric. with Katie Couric. I also love Moraka has a podcast called Mobituaries. Yes. I love it. It's just such a wonderful way of, of drawing attention to these incredible lives um, and celebrating them uh, for the accomplishments that they might not have been acknowledged for during the course of their their. their Time on this earth. Um, I also have to say Ridiculous History is one of my favorite podcasts. Um, okay, tell me, I've never heard of this. What it is, is out of How Stuff Works, and it's my... I call him my partner in crime. He was, uh, he's an, an executive producer on Murder in Oregon, but also we work together on Happy Face, Noel Brown. He does it with uh, Ben Bolin. And it's just interesting looks at conspiracy theories or random little slices of history. And they have that same camaraderie that you just referred to. Um for Generation Y, I guess. Yeah. Um, they just seamlessly gab and it's entertaining and informative everything you want a podcast to be well i always say like i don't even though i have a minor in history i don't like history Uh, anytime my friends are trying to do a book club and they're like it's going to be about this girl in like nazi germany who escaped i'm like i'm out i don't want to read about that i don't want to read about what was happening in france or england or i i I don't care i don't i want to read about something just like since you know 1920 20 in America on. Like, I don't want to know. So whenever anybody gives me any kind of history podcast, I'm like, nope, it has to, but ridiculous history. That as might, long as might be some, might be something I could like. As long as there's a little bit of quirk in there, a little bit yes. of quirk. Absolutely. Yes. Um, and what else, what else you got for me? All right. So we've spoken about the fact that I, I shy away from inserting myself too much into the story that I'm trying to tell. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is a trend. I think particularly in true crime, there can be a little bit of uh, an over-insertion of hosts and narrators into the storyline. And there yeah. is a podcast that spoofs that brilliantly. It's called Done Disappeared. Are you familiar with it? <laughs> Somebody told me about this, but I haven't listened to it. Just the name of it's it hilarious. It is yeah. a parody and it is hilarious. The host is a guy who calls himself John David Booter. And you have got to listen to it, Mary Payne. And you have okay. to call me and tell me what you think. Okay. There are okay. times that I will listen to an episode and the following day, you know, cohortal coffee through my nose, just remembering how funny some of the lines were. It's just a brilliant send up of the true crime podcasting genre. Okay. Well, I just, I love the title because, you know, being from Mississippi, that sounds like, I don't know, he done disappeared. We don't know where he gone to. Yeah. That just sounds like. <laughs> it's sounds very like funny. It's very people funny. People I would know. Oh my gosh. That's amazing. 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 I get, um, so many great ideas from talking to other podcasts. I mean, that's kind of the whole reason I do this really. But I, I think that, I mean, I probably spend an hour a day just looking through the list and going through the thing. And then if somebody comes up with something and I'm like, I've never heard of that. 
However, I've never heard of that. And that's little podcasts that don't kind of pop to the top of the chart or get into new and noteworthy or, you know, it's, it's, it's hard, you know, it's hard to chug along and get listenership. So that's why I'm always so happy when I hear of, uh, here of new ones. Well, it's amazing. I was looking at the stats and these probably aren't even current. There are over 700,000 podcasts in production right now. Yep. And there are in existence some 92 million episodes of content. And so, mm. you know, think about it. To to I I am I am so honored. It sounds, you know, cheesy, but it's true. I'm so grateful to be in this space and to have someone's ear is yes. such a privilege and such a responsibility. And I take it so seriously. I just think that it's a wonderful community and I'm very glad to be a part of it. I'll tell you something funny. Uh, my producer told me that I guess once a week or once a month, there's some webinar he listens to or watches or whatever you do with the webinar. And it's a um, a person that's a big uh, influencer in the podcast space where they give you the statistics and the how you do this and how you raise your apple and how this statistics say listeners do this or that, you know, all these things that producers know that, you know, I don't know. And he said that it's a real serious guy and that they, you know, it was like, however many thousands of people are on the webinar. And once he gets started, he says, okay, I've, I've got to come up with a really interesting statistic to start off this talk. 75% of podcasts are about murder. Like, and then he starts dying out laughing. And he was like, that's not really a statistic, but that's what it feels like. Anyway, you know, on with the <laughs> webinar. <laughs> Which, I mean, he, he, my producer thought was hilarious because, you know, whenever I'm telling him like, hey, here's my list of people I've reached out to. Here's a, here I want to interview. Here's what I'm interested in. He'll go, Murder, 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 true crime, murder. Oh, here's one that looks like it's funny. Murder, murder. He's like, are you only interested in murder? I'm like, I'm really not only interested in murder, but 75%. I mean, that sounds, that, that guy, whoever he was, sounded pretty accurate to me. It, it resonates <laughs> with people. And, you know, the thing that actually I find um, with true crime is far too often it's the person who's perpetuating the violence becomes the celebrity and is celebrated. And there's so right. many rich stories because of the ripple effect, um, the residual effect of crime and how it impacts not only on the family of the perpetrator, but the victims and the families of the victims. And I think that there's such, it's such a rich opportunity to tell a story from so many different perspectives. And to flip it a little bit. So mm -hmm. it's not about like, let's don't make Ted Bundy the hero in this story. Let's talk about these girls in the Coyote house that he murdered, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. Totally. Okay. So I really want to thank you because this has been great. And I love, we're doing this where we're talking to each other. We can see each other, which is always really, really fun. And I appreciate you joining me. I appreciate you talking to me about murder in Oregon. And I want you to tell my listeners where they can find out more about you and also the podcast murder in Oregon. You can check out murder in Oregon on iHeartRadio, um, iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And I am linked on there somewhere. So that's where you can find <laughs> that's where you can find me. I am on Twitter, but I am new on Twitter because I had to tone down my other Twitter account, which was a little too political. Yes. So I be careful. Yes. <laughs> scrubbed that. And so I, I have a fresh, more uh, podcast focused Twitter. And that's at Bright Pacheco. Okay. Well, that's, I found you just from looking at murder, murder in Oregon, and then you were linked there as well. 
Okay. Well, thank you so much. Uh, this has been great. And I will make sure all my listeners know, listen to Murder in Oregon. And if you're ever just scrolling through your iTunes chart, you'll see it there. But it's also easy to look up. And like I said, we're only in episode three. And I cannot wait to see what's coming because I can tell that it's just it's just getting going. So thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. And you have to keep me posted on what you think about the podcast. Oh, I will. Thank you.